0: We are in Acts 4 tonight. So does everyone have their Bibles? Um, let's go ahead and pull those out. Swords drawn. <laughs> All right. We're going to do some sword drills. If you know, you know. So Acts 4, it's really important. Um, that we have our scriptures out tonight, with the, uh, whether that's your phone or, because we're actually, we're tackling a big portion of scripture tonight. So I'd really uh, ask of you to be looking. Uh, We're gonna be doing a lot of looking at the screen back and forth, so make sure you have uh, Acts 4 in front of you. Um, before we jump in, I, I, I just want to recap, especially uh, us going verse by verse and going through. I just want to give a quick recap of kind of what we've been talking about, what we've been sharing. Uh, we do have a podcast. Alex has done an amazing job uh, walking us through Acts 2, Acts 3. So if you haven't heard it, go, go ahead and go back and find it on the podcast or website or on your phone or whatever. But just a quick recap. I think it's important because in, in opening the scriptures, um, context is, is huge. And so if you guys remember Acts 2... Um, just quick recap here. Acts two, Holy Spirit came right day at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came in power. Um, what I love about Acts two is that it was just a group of people that were eager and hungry, just praying and just waiting, and then boom, the Spirit falls. See, it was a group of people that were hungry with the promise. Right, they knew that Jesus said that the Spirit was going to come, and so they prayed and waited. And I believe that what happened there is, is almost kind of the first revival, if you will, where the Spirit came and people gathered and prayed. And very simple, what I loved about Acts 2 was it was a group of people that didn't build a bunch of hype, right? They, they heard revival was coming, they heard the Spirit was coming, and they didn't like schedule a conference like a year out. Right? They didn't host a worship night. None of that. None, none of that is bad. But what I love is just people that were hungry, just like tonight in worship. There's people that just came eager and were hungry, and they just started to pray. And then the Spirit was given to them. And what I love is that they, once they received this awaited gift, once the Spirit fell on them, it immediately pushed them to action. Where Peter received the Holy Spirit, the same one that we have in us tonight, in this moment, and it instantly pushed him to preach. Right, so the Holy Spirit came, and then he preached to a bunch of people, and then it says instantly 3,000 was added to their number. We know this. And I know it's simple, but it's important to recap here because it's a wake-up call for me because Peter instantly realized what he had, and he was just like, oh, boy, it's on. right? And it's convicting to me because I've had the Spirit in me for years, the thing that they were waiting for, I've had it in me for years, and honestly, I feel like there's been multiple days over and over where I didn't truly realize what I possess, and therefore, it didn't push me to immediate action. So you sitting here tonight, do you, do you really realize the true gift that you have in you tonight, and is it pushing you to action? It's something to think about, because truly, I think if... We realize the gift that we have and if it really sunk in like how it did for the early church. You know, like for me, I want it to be like Peter, where, the, where I realize I wake up today in this moment tomorrow where I'm like, oh, baby, it's on. Because I believe that if we realize what we really had, I'd probably be praying for people 24-7, right? I'm just being real here. Is there, are we alive? Okay. Okay. Um, then we move to Acts 3 where so the holy spirit comes it's important to have this recap too because as you know Alex has mentioned this a, a tons of times is that these chapters there was no chapter breaks so it's important to know that holy spirit came and just it, it happened and then so Peter in Acts 3 Peter and John were walking to the temple for prayer so they're just doing normal things in the middle of just heading somewhere Peter heals this beggar Jesus through him and if, if you guys remember, it's super powerful. Peter says, "Silver and gold I do not have, but I give to you." So, silver and gold—every church planter can relate to that. Silver and gold I don't have, but what—but you like that one? Okay. Um, but what I do give to you is the Spirit to bring healing. And then from there, right after the healing, Peter preaches again to all the people around. Uh, language that Alex used last week: show and tell. So he had, he realized I have the Spirit, and now I need to go display it, show it, and then tell. It's a good re- recap also because when we're about to read um, Acts 4, the same man that was healed then, the beggar, is actually in Acts 4 as well. Um, I just love that it's moving so fast, one thing after another. And when we move on to chapter 4, um, we're about to see that The enemy comes and brings opposition. I think it's important also to look at this chapter of what we can learn from, but also kind of have the mindset of uh, this is a good passage for us, and Peter displays what it looks like to be in spiritual warfare. So when the enemy comes to your mind and gives you thoughts, he shows exactly how we stand. Um, So I love, actually, we're a church of standing up and sitting down. Let's stand. I love to stand and uh, honor the word, but we're about to stand for a long time because Acts 4 is big. So let's stand and have the word in front of you. I'm going to just read it, and then we're going to dive in. Sound good? Okay. I'm going to actually do some rearranging here. Okay, Acts 4. Are you guys looking? All right. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. Because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas... All the people having new babies. Becky and I called dibs on that name. Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, was powerful, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Are you guys' knees okay? But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again, commanded them to to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats to let them go, they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. All right, right, we'll keep going. Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. After they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself tonight? Would you touch your people tonight more than ever with a spirit of boldness? God, just like what Alex was saying earlier, we're going to be a people that steward this gift, the Spirit, boldly by taking it out of this place. With faith, we actually say that tonight, it changes. We are a church of boldness. So Holy Spirit, would you come and be in our midst and reveal Jesus? We want to be like you. We love you. And Everyone said, amen. Let's go ahead and sit down. So what I want to do is we're going to walk through uh, chapter 4 again, those verses, just kind of verse by verse, and really see where Jesus is revealed, how we can learn from the early church for our current day. Because I think, like I said, this is a great passage um, of also what we can take in our life today of how the enemy comes to um, oppose us and how we can actually declare truth in the midst of that. So as we read in Acts 4, we see Peter preaching a sermon to the religious leaders with intense boldness, right? It's important to know that when we search the scriptures, and especially in Acts, we see that one of the most common manifestations of when someone is filled with the Spirit is that they are bold. So I feel like in looking at my life and looking at Acts 4, I know for sure there's seasons in my life where I know that I was marked by boldness. Where more than ever I was stepping out, praying for people, giving someone a prophetic word at the store, and just just it was on, right? And then maybe you could relate that there's also seasons in my life where I know that it wasn't marked with boldness where there's times where maybe I was getting lunch with a friend and my heart was pulled and tugged with compassion, whether it was just on a heart level or I saw someone in physical pain and I ignored it. But I feel like more than ever in this season, our church and me, we want more of the spirit. I wanna be filled over and over again. And I'm reminded that biblically, that filling that the Lord wants to do is filling me to push us and me towards boldness. Not just a filling to feel something, and I'm not against different manifestations. I want them in our church. And if you get to know me more, like, I want all the wacky stuff. But I obviously always want to start with the Bible. And I really see that the filling most of the time in Acts that they're talking about, of, of us being filled with the Spirit, is commonly that he wants his people to be bold. So I even mean, before we jump back into the Scriptures, I want to start with some questions while we're going through these. Just have these in the back of your mind, kind of brewing your spirit. Can you think of times that you were really bold? For the gospel, can you think of times where you maybe weren't so bold, where you didn't step out in faith? Maybe the times, um, like how I said, where you saw someone hurting and, and you felt that little tug, and you felt like I should just, even if I just said like Jesus loves you, but you just didn't. Um, in reading the scriptures and the truth spoken over us, and more than ever in this passage, I want us to really get tonight that our inherit our inheritance because of Jesus is not fear. Amen. That it's not shame, but victory in the gospel. And truly, deep down, I know more than ever that Jesus paid a high price on the cross for us to start stepping in and revealing him to the world. So my heart tonight is simple, just to remind us, to wake us up, to realize again the power that we have inside of us, to awaken our spirits, to not grow complacent, but to get truly excited about the gospel. The gospel, right, the good news I really want us to leave tonight being excited knowing how good the news actually is, that we must be bold, that as a community, as we read this passage tonight, and as we want the more of God in our gatherings, as the Spirit would come and pour himself out, and and we'd see a growth in the Spirit in this place, I'm also believing that alongside that growth, we see a growth of a people stepping into boldness. So, does that sound good? Okay, so we're going to start. Verse 1. Let's go ahead and uh, start here. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John, while they were speaking to the people. They were they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the Sadducees show up. Now the Sadducees, if, if you guys know, um, are the religious elite of the day. So these guys are highly intellectual. They're rich, very powerful, political. But what's important to note here is that um, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in healing. They, uh, they, they really just study the, first, uh, the Old Testament. And these are some of the same people that put Jesus on trial and ultimately crucify him. What I want to note is right here, right off the bat, that Satan wants to bring opposition, to discourage us, to ultimately move us into fear, But God actually uses, and we're about to see it even more, he actually uses that that opposition to strengthen us and give us courage through the truth. And even just in the first verse, we can see whenever we start stepping out, we start realizing what we have, we start to step out and walk in faith, opposition comes quickly. So I don't know if you guys have ever witnessed this, but when you start finding out your calling in life, you start serving Christ and going after the things in your life, Um, the enemy starts to come. He starts to try and quench the work of the Spirit in your heart because he doesn't want you to hear and experience the gospel. Opposition, a lot of times, is actually confirmation that you, in fact, are doing exactly what God wants you to do. I'll say it again. Opposition, a lot of times, is actually confirmation that you, in fact, are doing exactly what God wants you to do. Satan isn't actually uh, worried about complacent Christians, right? I found honestly that Satan isn't even scared of you hearing God. He isn't worried about you coming to church or singing songs. He isn't scared of the scriptures and you reading them. I believe he sees Christians do that stuff all the time, but then we don't believe it. Or the stuff that they're reading or singing doesn't push them to boldness. I believe, though, that he is super scared when you start believing and walking out and displaying the gospel. He then opposes that. He opposes it by you getting truth. When he sees you getting truth and doing something about it, he, you're considered a threat. See, people that forever just sit on the warm-up bench aren't a threat. But people like us and people who I believe were coming, so people standing up and fighting the good fight of faith, are going to be a threat to him. We've gotten a word before. It's so simple. I declare over Newburgh all the time of that. Newburgh's going to be known for a place that it's very hard to get to hell from here. It's a good word. So what we see here is that they're disturbed at the teaching of people uh, explaining the gospel, preaching the gospel in public. So there's opposition to the message. And so what this also shows us is whenever there's a genuine move of God, of the Holy Spirit, it annoys all the religious people. In our town, in their town, whenever there's a genuine move of God, all the religious people come out and they get super annoyed. And it kind of makes me laugh. Mostly because, like I said, the Sadducees don't believe in anything that they could not explain. Have you ever met anyone like that before? I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) Right? We're going to have fun tonight, I think. I heard like two people laughing. Maybe it wasn't funny. But I've heard people say that. They don't believe in miracles because they can't explain it, or resurrection of the dead. But it's important to note that these people are very smart. They have huge power, huge authority. So it's actually funny to think that If they didn't like the message, I believe that they had the type of power, this is just my opinion, they could have worked overtime to figure out how to stop people from preaching this, and then they probably could have even, like, found the body, right? But what's amazing in this passage, we actually see that these people, they actually, uh, they never really oppose the message saying it's false. They just don't like it because they don't believe it. So they're just angry because they're smart and they can't wrap their heads around it. And that's why I believe also in this day and age of going after signs and wonders, healing, it's so important because it can't fully be questioned, right? It's supernatural. And it's still true in our day that people really don't like our message. I see it with, uh, this is kind of funny, I'm a younger person, so I see it with uh, Kanye West. They don't like the message of Jesus. And therefore, over the years of church, I've noticed that we are so ashamed of, the, of our message that we actually edit out parts of the message so we don't get opposed, post. Like, can you imagine Peter and John sitting there or standing, and, and they just, someone was just healed in their preaching, and it says that the religious leaders walked up, and can you just imagine that they see him walking up, and they're just like, oh gosh, here they are. Uh, let's edit out the part about healing, and let's edit out the part about uh, Jesus raising from the dead. No, but as we actually see, they don't do that. So this should push us as believers to hold on to truth at all costs and be bold with it. As Christians, it's not our job to edit out the gospel message. It's all good news. Amen? So it's not our job to just not talk about sin because it seems a little negative. I know it's not our heart ever, and it's not the Christian job to ever point out sin. It's, it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, so God can handle that, but we still talk about sin because it's in the Bible. How about let's just shy away from the whole healing thing because what happens if someone doesn't get healed and there's a disappointment? Disappointment. No, God said these signs will follow those that believe. And if it doesn't happen, we're not going to be a people that create a th- theology on why it didn't happen, because the Bible says it will happen. Therefore, we humble ourselves and realize, okay, we live in a fallen word, world. It didn't happen, so let's get together. Let's build our faith, pray again, and understand that we're growing and stay strong. But we're not going to edit out the message, amen? Or let's, let's edit out that part at Saints Hill where we call ourselves saints, because it feels kind of uncomfortable. It feels kind of like egotistical. Actually, I think just like sinner, sinner saved by grace, it's a little bit more relatable. No, we actually come under the authority of the Bible, the truth. Therefore, we don't edit out what God says. We may not believe some of the things in here yet, and it may feel uncomfortable. But no, we with boldness and truth, we're going to grow into it. Amen. Because I believe, I'm going to preach now, I believe now is not the time for us to be ashamed of our message. It's not a time for us to be silent. It's never our job to be abrasive or intense just to be intense, but instead we move in the fruit of the Spirit in everything that we do. But we don't edit our message because of the fear of looking too intense. No, we're a people of the truth and we have the powerful message of Jesus and we want to proclaim it in its entirety. Amen? Moving on. Verse 3. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. So they get arrested, kind of say, let's deal with this tomorrow. Verse 4. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. I love this passage because it's so fun to see that in the midst Of all this chaos, trouble, opposition, I don't think it's a mistake that in the midst of all of that, that verse was just kind of put in there. See, in chapter 3, 3,000 were added, and then at this point, 5,000. It's a very simple point here, but I love this passage uh, and how it's sprinkled in there because it shows that God is always winning. Amen? It's a reminder to always focus on what he is doing and not what isn't happening. Like anything we do, like in this church, maybe you're going to start a prayer group or maybe a ministry at church or join one that's already existing. And it's very easy to just feel like it's not working out. There's opposition. No one's coming. That same weird person keeps coming and I'm stuck in a room with them. The kids don't stop crying. I don't know what it is. You fill in the blank. But but stop and remember, if I'm hosting his presence and preaching him, something is always happening. So Satan loves to steal our joy in the midst of opposition, but in the middle of it, Focus on his fruit. I believe staying thankful for the fruit truly is what keeps us going in the midst of opposition. So moving on, looking down at your Bible, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others in, in, of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So the Sanhedrin asked the question, which when I read this, honestly, when they ask that question, I find it so annoying. Why do I find it annoying? Because I believe it's like a rhetorical question. Because if you remember in verse 1, they actually walk up to Peter and John in the group and they know what they're talking about. They hear them preaching about Jesus. So it's a rhetorical question. And I feel like it even like like most rhetorical questions, it feels kind of like sassy. Like by what power or what name did you do this? So real quick, what's the point of a rhetorical question? This is so simple, but I feel like it's always asked for kind of like a dramatic effect for you to feel something. Most of the time, I feel like most of the time a rhetorical question is kind of sassy and kind of rude. Like it's always meant to make a point. And obviously rhetorical questions aren't supposed to get an answer. And I'd like to take it further that in most cases, it's actually to start an argument or a fight. It's really to have the questioner put loud and proud their opinion. It's like a rhetorical question, like, oh, really? Or you think I would have even said yes to that? Or sarcastically, is there anyone funnier than me? Or I love this one. This is like the most dad rhetorical question. Is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) Right? All right, I thought it was funny. (laughs) See, it's annoying because the religious leaders ask the question, which starts, they ask a question and it starts opposition. And I believe, isn't this just classic Satan? Like in the garden, the snake saying, did God really say? See, in my personal life, I get thoughts and questions like this all the time, where the enemy comes and says, do you really think you're good at that thing? Or do you really believe you're qualified? So maybe just calm down. See, the enemy is always trying to scare us and question us. Now, another good thing to point out here is and it's not just Peter and John standing there in their midst being questioned, but also the man that was healed. So standing there with a body made whole, a sign of power standing in the midst of everyone to witness, it's so powerful. Peter and John are standing there, and they are able to use this fruit. And I'd actually propose that in that moment, they're exactly where Jesus promised them that they'd be. So real quick, let's look at the screen. Next slide here, Matthew 10. Be on your guard. This is Jesus talking. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I love what happened here, because it's so cool, because even in this passage, it shows that Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. And now, moving on here in a second, in verse 8, we actually see this phrase, quote, filled with the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. And it's important to know that the Greek here, in filled with the Spirit, is actually saying that it's a present action of filling, not just for salvation, but for empowering. So this is important. Luke put this in here, the author of Acts, to show us, us believers, that actually we can be filled by the Spirit multiple times. We receive the filling, yes, by being born again. So when you accept Christ, he comes into your heart. But he's also showing us here that we need the filling of empowerment. It needs to happen over and over again. So tonight, don't lose sight that the Spirit wants to come and fill you multiple times whenever the need arises which in Acts we actually find the early church that multiple times in the early church days that they were constantly put in situations where they needed an empowerment to be filled by the spirit. So Sam, I've heard some people say, well, how come, does, how come does the spirit really like not come on me? Why doesn't he fill me up? And my little vantage point tonight, what I'd like to propose is is maybe you aren't in any situations where you're needing his power. Or maybe you aren't focused on the presence, right? Needing to come into a situation. You're not in a situation where it's like, oh, Holy Spirit wants to come and fill me right now and empower me. So let's move on. Next verse, are you guys still awake? Great. Verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, there it is, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Super powerful. I love that boldness. I love that Peter here in this moment is he's in the midst of this opposition. And keep in mind, like I said, you you guys know this, but the Sanhedrin, they're like the Lawkeepers. They're like intense. So the, in the midst of this, he's not beating around the bush. He's not doing anything. Peter boldly just makes it clear, right? He's saying, oh, you guys want to know how this guy was healed? Let it be known in all of Israel that this guy stands here whole because of the power of Jesus Christ. So the person that you guys crucified by him and him alone, this is how it happened. Huge boldness, right? This is the same group of people that threw Jesus over to be crucified." And Peter's standing here in boldness, knowing that his life is probably on the line for saying something like this. And I love his boldness, because really, he's saying, there's no compromise. He just declares truth in the midst of opposition. So I want to encourage you tonight, when opposition comes to you, when the enemy comes into your thoughts and mind, declare truth. See, the world needs more Christians that respond, quote, filled with the Spirit. Not filled with the flesh, so not filled with anger, That's what Christians tend to do. The non-Christians are like, geez, you guys are more angry than me. You're like spitting and stuff with your big sign and getting all angry. Like, I don't want to be a Christian. (laughs) No, we need need people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, not an offended, grumpy spirit. How many of you know that you can say all the right things, but just in the wrong way? If you're married, you know this. (laughs) We see in this next verse that We are to always in the midst of opposition and questioning, we're always supposed to point people back to Jesus. So verse 11, let's look at our Bibles. I love this. He just declares it. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Well, the cornerstone of everything. He's the centerpiece of everything that God is building. Next slide here. Isaiah 28 says this. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So the cornerstone is the foundation piece. So he's saying, hey, Jesus is the cornerstone, but you, the builders, you rejected him. In verse 11, Peter is actually quoting Psalm 118. And this is powerful because when Peter quotes Psalm 118, These people know exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, hey, you're building this whole foundation of religion on sand and it's weak. He looks at the Sadducees and says, hey, you guys are building this whole thing wrong. You guys know this psalm and look how you guys are trying to lead people to God when Jesus is the cornerstone. Amen. Next verse, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. It's powerful. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I believe that this scripture right here, verse 12, is one of the uh, one of the best evangelical uh, evangelistic scriptures in the Bible. The statement is very powerful. He's saying salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. It's a bold statement, but also, but also isn't this statement pretty exclusive? <laughs> right, especially in a culture that hates exclusivity. Right, you can't say that. You Christians are saying your way or the highway. But here's the deal. I think it's important to know it's not us saying it. We're just quoting what the Bible says, right? The Bible's very clear and it leaves zero room for compromise. See, in a day and age where debate is so huge, politically, even religiously, I see it everywhere. I'm on YouTube. I love the YouTube, but I see it all the time. And it's filled with de- debates. I don't know if you've seen just different debate videos, you know, and they're like intense. It's like, watch so-and-so get trampled by this other person. Or it's like, watch so-and-so get destroyed. And you're like, whoa. And I, I kind of like them, but it's just intense. <laughs> see, we can see what's important is that we can debate all we want, but the way I look at it is for us as Christians, it eventually all comes back to the essence of this passage right here. Really, the question at the end of it all is, yeah, but who's Jesus. See, Peter here says, Jesus is the cornerstone and he is the center, but also there is salvation found in no one else. I love it. And this is exactly what Jesus said about himself. Next slide. John fourteen six. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See guys, this, this statement is very exclusive. It's never to push people out, obviously, but we have to come to peace with the, these type of statements. See, you may hear from people, yeah, but doesn't um, all religion has pieces of truth that lead to God? See, if anyone says that, they're obviously maybe saying that they know the whole truth. Or they're saying that we can actually find it, that everything we need to know about God is sprinkled into different avenues of religion, and so we can actually find it. See, people say this stuff, I believe, because it's inclusive, it's accepting, but see, when we read Jesus and what Peter says about Jesus, doesn't it kind of just destroy all of those questions? Jesus just kind of says, hey, well, guys, sorry. <laughs> There's only one way. It's me. It's powerful. And if people kind of get angry in our day and age and say, hey, how can you say that? Our reply should always be back to Jesus. We aren't just saying this. It's not something we came up with. He said it. So we believe what he says. He says. See, you never want your fights to be between just two humans. Instead, have it between a, a person and give them, I, think, I believe Jesus is a big boy. Have it be between a, a person and Jesus in the Bible, the truth. Because Jesus is the only way. It's a bold thing to say. You want to get people kind of mad at you? <laughs> Obviously, you, the goal is never to go out and just get people angry. But keep saying that over and over and watch what happens. People don't like it. But come on, guys, we got to say it, right? Jesus is Lord. What Peter's saying, salvation comes in Christ alone and him alone. This is bold. Why is this bold in this context? It's because these religious leaders have really thought about salvation. They know about atonement. They know about sacrifices. But Peter is declaring it's not by works. It's not by power or status or you doing all the right stuff. But salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. And he points it all back to Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. Isn't it so easy in church nowadays to make it all about the stuff except Jesus. That's why even Paul later on in the book, he says, I come preaching not myself, but Jesus. It's good. Moving forward. Let's look at the, uh, our Bibles. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, I love this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. I love this because God is making a statement statement that he uses the lowly. He uses the lowly of intellect, of status, and he lifts them up. We see that in multiple people in the Bible. God chooses the lowly, to show the people of high status and shock them, right? Remember, the Sanhedrin are the power, like the, the powerful of the land, the religious elite. They have authority in the land. They have huge education. And these ordinary people come to them, and they see in them Jesus. So simple, but God is showing us here that he can use anyone. Is that good news for anyone? I know it's for me that he can use anyone. And my heart tonight is, is that God isn't against education, right? I believe that we are called to learn, and it's powerful to read, uh, go to seminary, do these things. If you know who you are in Christ, go do those things and learn. But I believe what we are learning here, that, uh, that God isn't against education, but he is against people in power using control when they haven't been with him. Let me say it again. He does have an issue with people using power to control people when they haven't been with him. See, over the years, I think the church has kind of got this wrong with some leaders. See, we look at leaders and pastors, and we're like, hey, um, so what seminary did you go to? Or tell me your educational history. And I love this. I'm not dogging on this. I, I love the heart, and I, I do believe knowledge is amazing. Like I said, it's powerful. But we should always want to grow in knowing more about God and, and being in his presence. Like our staff right now is reading a book called Defining Moments, It's about revival history, people that were used big time by God. And you'll find that multiple times they were people that were uneducated. Maybe they never went to seminary. Some of them didn't even go to school, yet God used their yes. He used their dependence on him to change church history forever. He used these people to speak to thousands of people, and major fruit came of their lives in ministry. And now they're looked at as heroes. They had huge wisdom and were smart. But they didn't have all the accolades. It's just a reminder tonight to never disqualify you or anyone to step into leadership and move in Holy Spirit power and boldness. Right now, some of you may need to hear right now that you are qualified. The Lord has spoken. He's given you your spirit and you are qualified. So the leaders here are shocked and they take note. Get this. They take note and the scriptures say, these guys have been with Jesus. I think someone else needs to hear this tonight, that nothing can take the place of being with Jesus. They've never been to Bible college, but now they're moving in major power wisdom because they have been with Jesus. I believe more than ever that the world doesn't need better trained Christians. With pedigrees and this really nice clean presentation of the gospel, no, the world needs more people that have been with Jesus. Like, can you, do you guys remember when Moses would go up to the mountain and come down and he's shining? The world needs more people shining with Jesus on their face because they've spent time with him. It's a good word. Are you going to be that person? So verse 15, look at your Bibles here. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. I love that verse because I just feel like they got flustered and we're like, oh, we'll figure this out in a bit. Uh, verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? Here we are, sorry. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. See, so the Sanhedrin, they had like a little holy huddle. (laughs) They're saying, hey, we can't disprove this. I can see, in my mind, I can see them, like, huddling around, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and I feel like some homeboy in the back's like, I have an idea. Let's scare them. (laughs) Right? And they're like, yes, good idea, Augustine. I don't know. That's just what I see. Maybe it's not his name. But they're saying, hey, we need to scare them. We need to tell them to be quiet. And don't you think Satan does the same thing? He tries to scare us. But here's the good news for you tonight. Satan has no authority over you. I'll say it again. If you're a child of God, God has authority over you. (laughs) All authority has been given to Jesus, so that means Satan has none. Can I get an amen? Moving on, verse 18. This is fun. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now remember, Jews looked at the Sanhedrin as the supreme court of the law. So this is actually a big deal. So when a group of people like this look at you and command something of you so intensely saying, we command you not to speak about Jesus anymore, normally this would be a huge thing to obey. But look what Peter and John did with courage and boldness. They did this. Let's look at our Bibles, verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Any further threats, that they let them go. Any further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So what we see here is it's a pretty polite way of Peter and John just saying, no, we can't do what you are asking. See, in this context, they're being disobedient. In a civil context, so listen here, The problem, though, is that when the authority or power of man tries to get their authority higher than God's authority. See, so the Sanhedrin say, don't speak anymore. But Jesus said this. Next slide, Matthew. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, Jesus is the higher command. Religious leaders said be silent, but Jesus said speak up, speak out. So we have a contradiction here, right? But we are called to have a higher obedience to Christ. So I'm not saying Christians are above the law. I believe that we are called to be people of the law, but you obey God's law first. And so if man's law ever tries to tell you to do something that goes against God's word and truth, you have permission, by me, by Jesus to do what Peter and John did and, said, and politely say, no, we have someone higher in command we must listen to. That's powerful in this day and age. of, of there's, there's certain, I don't want to get down this track, but there's certain things that are getting opposed and saying, believe this and do these things. But I believe they're going above God's command and his law, and we actually politely get to say no. We hear a ton from certain people, and, and it's true. Don't be offensive. I get it, our heart is never to be rude, but let's be real, this is so simple. I got this really when I was thinking here, we can either offend people or we can offend God. Lying about God's word and editing out the gospel in certain places, that's offensive to God. (laughs) So not being offensive for the sake of being offensive, but what Peter is saying is Jesus is Lord and I'm not going to stop saying that. Isn't that amazing boldness? How often can we dive into fear and let fear of man control us? but it didn't happen to Peter. You guys awake? Okay, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I love that when they heard the report, they heard this report of opposition. When they heard that people were getting angry and commanding things, Get this, they ran to the presence by lifting up prayers to God. They weren't the Christians that ran to anger and gossip and start a protest. They ran to God in prayer. I would argue that this in the early church is a sign of them strengthening themselves in the Lord. They came against big opposition and they ran to prayer to also remind themselves of God's authority and his truth. And remind themselves of who God is in the midst of all of this. They didn't get depressed. They didn't call all their friends to vent and be ticked off, right? Sure, it was probably a scary situation, but instead they chose to strengthen themselves. And I believe it's a powerful model for us. Let's keep reading here. Verse 25. This is an amazing prayer. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our Father David. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Isn't that a powerful prayer? To paraphrase, to paraphrase if I can, is I believe they're saying, Lord, here we are, your bold and ready servants. We're saying, hey, we're just getting started. Their heart cry is essentially saying, More, Lord. They're saying, More, Lord. See, what's happening is these people are getting in trouble. A man got healed. The nations are raging. So the Lord actually is doing everything that he said was going to happen. But they're saying, Lord, let's keep it going. Pour out your power even more with signs and wonders. It's amazing. And in verse 29, if, if you look again, they're praying for boldness. They're saying, Lord, we know there's going to be more of this, so fill us with your spirit so that we can be bold. So last scripture of the night. Here we go. You guys having fun? Does anyone feel fed? I hope so. Verse 30, 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled, there's that word again, filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So look how amazing God is. What happened is they've got filled again. So multiple fillings. But for what? To step out more. It really sobers me to think of when I get scared, what type of prayers do I pray? What type of prayers do you pray when you're scared? But I want to be a people that pray like them, with huge faith and strength, where they ask for boldness to keep going because they know Jesus is victorious. And it really makes me think, Jesus said multiple things like this. Next slide, John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, I've noticed that Jesus in his message a lot of times towards us is, go do this stuff, proclaim me. In doing so, you'll have crazy joy, you'll have crazy peace, but opposition will come, scary situations will come. But in my paraphrase, he's saying, but chill out, have peace, and take heart. But why take heart? For the simple, crazy reality that I've overcome the world. <laughs> Jesus has overcome the world, so let's show the world what true boldness looks like. Amen? Let's all stand.